All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you I haven't met, I'm Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it is our pleasure to have all of you here to worship. Uh, this is a Lord's Supper service. So in just a few minutes, we will be receiving the Lord's Supper together. Thank you. Um, the scriptures admonish us that when we are about to receive the bread and the cup, the elements of communion, that uh, we should not do so lightly, that we should do so carefully, having examined our hearts. And if there is some sin in our heart, to confess that to God, to repent of that, to turn away from it. Uh, in other words, uh, you want to be squared up with God before you receive the Lord's Supper. So let me encourage you to take these next few minutes while we're talking and having a little reflection on scriptures uh, to kind of do a heart check and square things up with God as you need to. And then when we invite you to receive the Lord's Supper, you'll be in a place that's uh, ready to do that. OK, uh, this is kind of a special day for us because it is the one year anniversary since we uh, gathered for a solemn assembly. It was on Saturday, October 16, last year, that we had that special and unique gathering. And so what I'm inviting us to do in these next few minutes is to look back a little bit, consider and remember what was God doing in us, with us, to us, and then kind of begin to move forward from that point. What did the rest of the you know, 11, 12 months after that look like? What was going on? How am I different? How are you different? And where do we go from here? Because we've had these unusual, uh, exceptional, if you will, gatherings with God, where might he be inviting us to go with him? Now, uh, let me set up a couple of things for you as we get into the conversation. First of all, I realize not everybody in here was at the solemn assembly. Okay, some of you have come uh, aboard with us in the months since then. Some of you were not able to be with us on that day, even though you were a part of the church family at that time. And that's fine. Uh, here's what we have discovered across the months. If you were not here and a family member of yours was for the solemn assembly, or if you were not here and friends who are at maybe your small group were a part of it, Somehow, uh, the Solemn Assembly had a significant impact on many of you that weren't even able to attend with us on that day. And so in just a moment, I'm going to come out and circulate among you to see, is there anything that you want to share? Is there any kind of um, reflection that would uh, edify, build up, encourage, stir the rest of the body just to hear for a moment what God's been doing with you over these last few months. Before we do that, let me just recap some of what that was all about. Because some of you are going, solemn assembly, solemn assembly. I, I, what is that? Well, it's a very ancient practice. Uh, we took our cues from Joel chapters 1 and 2 in the Old Testament. But there were solemn assemblies even before the time of Joel. Joel was one of the prophets uh, in Old Testament times. And uh, what was going on in his day was kind of a natural disaster, a national calamity. Uh, they had this swarm of locusts that came into the country 
and just devoured all the crops that were ready to be harvested. So to translate that in today's terms, they were in an economic crisis. Uh, the entire bottom of their economy fell out because all of their crops were consumed by this plague of locusts. I don't know, does that sound familiar to you? Uh, economic challenges, the bottom falling out, we lose our retirements, all of our investments, you know, things like that. And so in light of that natural disaster and that economic crisis, Joel took the opportunity to talk to the people of God about the day of the Lord. Now, that's a, a, a pretty common New Testament theme. And most of what we understand about the day of the Lord out of the New Testament, we are uh, at first gleaning from Joel way back when. And he says the day of the Lord is going to be something similar to this natural disaster. When the Lord comes, uh, it'll be like the bottom falling out of a lot of people's lives. Um, he said it's going to be something like uh, our neighbors to the north uh, who are assembling themselves and getting ready to attack, to attack us. He was talking about the nation of Assyria, who was just north of Israel. And they did eventually come down and attack and destroy the nation. Uh, he said it's going to be like that. God's going to have a day of reckoning, a day of accountability. And so what he was saying is, I, I'm blowing the trumpet. I'm sounding the alarm. There's a God in heaven who is coming and who is going to hold everybody accountable for everything that we've ever done. And the good news is, there is yet time to repent. You're still drawing a breath? It hasn't happened yet. You still have a moment to, to turn your heart around toward God and square things up with him before that day of reckoning, that day of accountability. And so let's do that, Joel said. Let's call a solemn assembly. Let's everybody in the land come and let us kneel before the Lord and let us be repentant and let us confess our sins and let us, uh, by his power, turn our lives uh, around so that we are living uh, in his favor and to his glory. And let's consecrate, set our lives apart to him. So that's what that was all about. It's happened many, many times throughout the history of uh, Israel and Judaism. It's happened many, many times throughout Christian history where believers would reach a point in time where they sensed God stirring them in this way to call a solemn assembly, a special gathering for consecration, for dedication, for repentance. And thus we did, October 16, last year. So some of you are aware, but let me just take a moment to uh, remind you, what happened here and what happened in you was not only important for us, but it was important for a lot of other people. Because the way you gathered, the way you responded to God became catalytic to a lot of other congregations across the Northwest and even to a lot of congregations across America. We didn't talk a whole lot about it. I just gave you a couple of little anecdotes and a couple of little stories to let you know what took place. 
But uh, as you know, I am uh, leading for uh, a second year all the churches that are part of our Northwest Convention, about 450 congregations. And because I had that platform, I was able to not only share our story, but call all of our sister congregations to move toward God in a similar kind of way. And many of them did. Many of them had solemn assemblies in the months following ours. And they shared some of those stories with me and and the press picked up some of those stories. And when the press picked up some of those stories, churches in various parts of America began to have that same stirring, that same kind of tug at their hearts. And many churches across America had solemn assemblies based upon what happened here. You're going, you're kidding me. I'm not kidding you. I got calls from various parts of the country saying, can you tell us exactly what happened that day? Can you tell us uh, what kinds of exercises that you went through in order to meet with God in that uh, period of time? And I did a little uh, coaching and sharing of uh, resource with various churches across the land. So that's a little bit of a glimpse of what happened elsewhere. And we're grateful that God would use us in those kinds of ways, ways that uh, probably 90% of you were not even that aware of until I'm saying it just now. But let's bring it a little more home. What's been going on with you since that time? I have to tell you, um, it was one of the most life-shaping things for me that I had gone through in a long time. And and I'm not talking about just that day. Obviously, because I was kind of leading us to that day, there was a lot of preparatory things. We had a series on holiness that led into that. That series and that preparation and my meeting with God over those weeks um, profoundly impacted me. And I trust for the rest of my life. And I've shared with some of you in smaller circles Uh, And I'm not going to get into it today, but one of those ways that really, really impacted me was around the sovereignty of God. Just how big he is, just how powerful he is, just how in control he is. And I've been acquainted with sovereignty for decades, but it just took my heart to a whole new level. A whole new respect and reverence, a whole new sense of awe. uh, That continues to impact how I look at life and circumstances today. So I'm just going to take a couple of minutes, and some of you want to share. We'd love to hear. If if uh, there's not much to say about it at this point, we're going to go on and talk about where we go from here. But let me move and come in your direction. And we're just talking about a minute or two. Is there something that you would say uh, from that day across these 12 months, here's how God's been interacting with me. Here's something that's different with me. Here's uh, kind of a new sense of direction I've had about life or whatever. All right. Go ahead and stand. Yeah. Um, for me, I still get emotional. Um, I spoke about this at our forum last year, but we went through a miscarriage and I came into the solemn assembly um, just dealing with a lot of anger and um, I presented that to our share group and just kind of said what I was going through but uh, it wasn't until the solemn assembly that I realized that 
that was just the sin that I need to repent of um, just to move forward. So that was just a huge turning point um, in my life, I think, in ours, in our marriage. And um, since then, in the year, uh, we have a baby. And um, I look back and just think, you're talking about how sovereign God is. And um, at the time, I didn't realize it, but now I think... If we wouldn't have gone through that, we wouldn't have Elise, Hmm. Um, which that in itself is amazing. Um, And since then, it uh, just causes me to trust in God a lot more. And um, just through the whole pregnancy, just lifting that up to him, um, just knowing that while there was certain stuff I could do just to keep healthy, that ultimately it was his and she was in his hands and um we found out that we're both um, cystic fibrosis carriers and there was a chance that she would be born with that and they recommended um doing amnios yes amniocentosis or whatever um to find out for sure um and we chose not to do that just because it wouldn't have mattered to us and if she had cystic fibrosis then it wouldn't have changed the way that we loved her and treated her. So um, she doesn't, we found out, but um, just through that whole thing, we read up on it, but it wasn't something that was going to change her, change us, um, just in how we loved her. It would have changed how we raised her and just made some things difficult, but um, that was something that just, let God handle it because mm. it was out of our control. So um, I think it's made me a better parent just to put more trust in Him and not myself that I can control everything that happens. So the solemn assembly was just a huge, huge point in our life. So I'm glad, glad you had it. Thank you. Trust is such a big deal when you're talking about how do you trust God. And it's remarkable the way he worked with you about that. Somebody else, you want to take a moment? Okay. Um, as trust is also something that really helped for me. Is I realize now that um, I don't, I guess when I don't get the, I guess I stay calmer in things. I mean, still things are happening in our family and, and with my kids and uh, other things and finances, but I don't go there anymore. I kind of go with God, and um, that's really made a difference. It's just knowing that it, um, that God will be there. He's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of my kids, and I can't control everything, and God's in control, and just he knows what's best, and let him do it. And it's helped me also be really encouraging to people that are going through really tough stuff and just being able to tell them, you just need to start trusting because that's what you know God wants us to do. Thank you. Okay. For me, I think seeing the importance of the people of God coming together as a church, thinking of like the Old Testament and them having all these problems and and the New Testament, how like they would all 
share their belongings with another, one another and they would come together as a people and, and as a, a family, the family of God. And seeing everyone have things they need to repent of and, and pray for and troubles they're going through and we all have that. There isn't anyone in this room who doesn't. And sharing that with someone else and listening to them repent and share about their lives. And it was uh, English so bad. Um, everyone read my mind. It, being a Christian and being a part of a fellowship and having the Holy Spirit bind us as a family and being able to share with one another and help one another. And then at the end where you were talking about reaching out to the, the all of Seattle and everywhere, the whole Great Commission of praying for other people, the two things that came away from it were reaching out to our fellow family members in our local family and other families like other churches around but also to my co-workers and my, my neighbors and so being more purposeful and bringing our neighbors over for lunch and meeting with them and being involved in their lives, building that bridge with them and then finding out ways to get the gospel in there Amen Thanks All right. Okay. Um, the thing I remember about the Sahama Assembly was it was a um, pretty pivotal time for the Chris family. I think I remember that um, that was right about the time he had heart surgery. Um, and we were all... Uh, full of praise for God for um, healing him in that special way um, for finding a heart that matched and we were just so joyous and I remember Scott saying um, would we be as joyous if it didn't work out would we still be praising God um, if that was his will you know would we, would we be okay with that and that really struck me because I was like no, <laughs> I would not be okay with that. Um, and it, it just, that really stuck with me. Um, and it's something that I've been working on a lot over the year to be thankful in all circumstances. First uh, Thessalonians 5.18 says, be thankful in all circumstances because of who you are in Christ. And um, I've... <laughs> course when you work on something with God he tests you on it right um, so over the year we have um, gone through several situations where I have had to be okay with answers of no and um, and I've learned to be joyous in that um, God has me exactly where he wants me to be um, and I wouldn't be here if I had complained or if whined about him telling me no in certain situations and he knows what's best for me um there's a a sign that i read recently that said um 
just because uh, you don't get what you want doesn't mean you don't deserve it. It means God thinks you deserve more. And I believe that. I think that he knows honestly what is best for us. He knows what we deserve. And, um, and I just praise him for that, for being the God of creation and of the world and um, taking care of me and taking care of um, my family at, like he does. Thank you. All right. Okay. I, I think for me it was heightened awareness. It's, it's kind of easy to get into a rut and numb and sort of just go through the motions of showing up at church. And so that time was a time of sensing God's holiness again in a deeper way. And in the light of that, taking a look at me and going, wow, there's stuff I've let go on in my life that I haven't dealt with, character issues, flaws, things that I know I need to be working on. And I've just cruised along and let that happen. Um, and so coming away from that, there was sort of a increased sense of urgency for me in my life to you know, ask myself, what am I doing about working on this relationship? A relationship doesn't work unless you both work on it. And so showing up here and sitting down on my butt isn't a way to have a close relationship with God. And where was the urgency in that? And was I just going to walk away and be distracted? And so I think through this year, I have felt a clear sense of not wanting to drift back to the way things were and thinking of the sort of journaling that we did, not want to have a big long list of things that I haven't addressed with God one year on. Thanks, brother. Okay. Thompson, part two. <laughs> Give you exercise. I learned a lot about confession through the solemn assembly. Um, we had a time of uh, personal confession, a time of confession to God, a time of confession to our friends, and possibly even a time of confession to people that we weren't that familiar with. Um, and I think too often it's easy to think that confession is just something that happens between you and God inside your head. And like it never leaves your head. Um, but through that, it showed me how powerful it can be to write some of that down, um, put word to that thought. Um, and then to voice the word that came from that thought um, and how powerful that can be, how freeing that could be. Um, and uh, some of the confession that we did with our friends or with a partner, it was usually with someone that we knew pretty well, but we had an odd number. And so I had to do it with someone who I wasn't that familiar with. And I, I was amazed at how easy that was. Um, and through that, it's made me more open to being confessional or, or just being open about the things that I'm struggling with in my life to people that I don't have the closest relationship with. Um, I think most of it's like I would I would never share that stuff with someone that I I don't know, you know, intimately. But especially in a body of believers, it's it's God that's connecting you together. Um, you don't have to have some special bond to share what's going on in your lives. And by keeping it internal you're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting others 
who could benefit from hearing about your struggles as well. Um, and so that um, was very impactful to me. That was impactful for me to see. Just all over the room, people one-on-one confessing sin one to another. And people, you know, that typically would say, my sin is my business. You know, I'm not sharing that with anybody. But uh, um, the scriptures admonish us to confess our sins not only to God but to one another. And we talked about how to do that in a trusted kind of way. And then to confess sins one with another within our uh, small groups. Uh, it was a meaningful thing for me to see. Okay, anybody else you want to say a word before we move on? Okay, I really appreciate you sharing. So the question is, where do we go from here? Um, and I want us to have a few moments of considering some scriptures. So if you have your Bible, you want to open it up to Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter. Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter. And I, I want to entertain the question, what is it that God wants from us? And if I came awakened you at... 3 a.m. Got you out of a deep slumber, and that pop just got some of you out of it. So, <laughs> if I came and did a pop and got you out of a deep slumber at 3 a.m. and said, What does God want from you? What would you say? Do you understand? You have a clear picture. This is what God wants. When you began to examine the teachings of Jesus and that of the New Testament, um, there, there's a lot of things that you could say, but it really comes down to one word. And the word is righteousness. That's what God's looking for. You say, well, uh, English, <laughs> help me. Words, definitions, connotations, what does that mean? Well, it has at least a couple of connotations. And one is, to be righteous is to have a right standing with God. So when you think about God who is holy, transcendent, over and above, uh, completely unique, there's not another being in the entire universe that's even similar to his greatness and his magnificence. Uh, and we, not holy, Busted, broken, a reproach to him, an insult to him, uh, in rebellion to him, at odds and enemies to him. This is what the scripture says we are. Then how does somebody like that have a right standing with God? It's the question of the universe and of all time. If he expects righteousness, a right standing with him, how does somebody get there? And it means... Once you have that right standing before him, that you, you move forward with right living before him. Right standing with him, right living before him. That's righteousness. And, and this is a big deal. It, it's a huge deal. And uh, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about that in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have that open with me, you want to look at verse 33. It's underscored 
in my Bible, I'd encourage you to make sure it's underscored in yours. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So it's about priority. It's about what's going to be first in your life. Seek first. It's the disciples' job one to make his kingdom, which is which is reign and rule over us, preeminent to us, and his righteousness preeminent to us, meaning living before him in ways that he demands. Now, one other thing I want us to think about on this, back up a page to chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to kind of sit and soak with that thought for just a moment. And, of course, you know that the Pharisees were people that Jesus was often at odds with. Yet, he found enough that was affirming within them to say, by the way, the bar is above where they are. And nobody was more intense and careful and scrupulous about how to get at righteousness than Pharisees. Unless is a necessary condition. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you have righteousness at a certain level. And whatever that level is, it's beyond where the Pharisees were. And the Pharisees had the highest bar, the highest level of righteousness of anybody on the planet. And it's got to be somewhere above that. Now, that leads many theologians to unpack the rest of the New Testament in light of what Jesus said to the doctrine. I'm going to give you a couple of big words here, okay? If you were beginning to nod off, I'm going to knock you right down and you're going to finish that snooze right here. Uh, Because the word is imputation. Imputation. So one of the ideas behind Jesus' statement that unless your righteousness is up here, like where God's is, it's got to be way above the Pharisaical level, you'll never get into heaven. You'll never have a relationship with God. And part of what he's getting at there is that it's so impossible, it must be imputed to you. It must be given to you because you can't get there. And so it's the idea that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of righteousness. And he gives or imputes his righteousness to everyone who has faith in him and follows him. So if I began to believe and receive Jesus and I began to be a follower of Jesus and I have faith that he is the son of God who atones for sin, then in that moment, he justifies me, gives me a right standing before the judge and puts his righteousness in me, 
imputes it, transfers it. Okay? Now, if you can think about this by way of your bank account, and um, you all of a sudden had a credit just put on your account. You didn't do anything for it. They just gave it to you. Boom. Here's a, a bonus for being our customer. Boom. That's, the kind, that's what we're talking about, imputation. You didn't do anything about it. It's just boom. He, he gives it. So it's true that Jesus imputes his righteousness to those who by faith believe and receive him. But here's the thing that we've got to remember. Imputation always leads to transformation. In other words, it's not like I've got to work as hard as I can work and climb as high as I can climb on the righteousness ladder, hoping that I'll eventually get there. He's going to impute it to me. But if he imputes it to me, there will be an evidence that it's been imputed to me. There will be an evidence that his righteousness has come inside of me. And that is, it'll come out of me. There will be a fruit, if you will, just as much as you know. Oh, that's an apple tree. Why? Because it's bearing apples. You will know there's a Jesus follower because he's bearing the fruit of Jesus, the character traits of Jesus, the virtues, the values of Jesus. And so, friends, here is where many Americans who regularly go to church should tremble. Because in their head, they've accepted some doctrinal statements about Jesus. But in their life, their lifestyle, the daily living it out, there is not the fruit of Jesus' righteousness. And Jesus says, listen, if that righteousness is not there, there's no hope. Now, if that righteousness is there, you have all hope and everybody will know you have it because of the fruit of righteousness that it will bear. You'll be loving. You'll be kind. You'll be full of joy. You'll be patient. You'll be generous. You'll be long-suffering. You'll be self-controlled. On and on we could go. Now, um, let's talk about that pharisaical righteousness for just a moment. Because you know Jesus had problems with them and condemned them. But he did so in a context that also contained affirmation. For example, in Matthew 23, 13, Jesus said of the Pharisees, you travel across sea and land to make a proselyte. In other words, these guys were evangelistic. These guys were missional. Now, they didn't have a clear grasp on what the gospel was, but they had a clear grasp that somehow life is really found in God. And they went everywhere telling people that and calling people to life in God. They were unparalleled in evangelistic fervor and commitment. And then when you look in verse 23, you'll hear Jesus say to them, and you tithe. Now, you neglect 
weightier matters, but you tithe. And he affirms them for that. These are the kinds of guys that across a year, if they had had ten calves born to them, they would take one calf and give it to God in an act of worship at the temple. If they went out and collected uh, a harvest from their field, they would figure out what a tenth of all that harvest bounty uh, that they brought in, what the, a tenth would be, and they would take it as an act of worship to God at the temple. I mean, these are the kinds of guys that were so focused and so intense about the tithe that if they walked out of here and they saw a dollar laying on the ground, they would pick it up, turn around, come back in, and give a dime into the church offering. They just were not going to allow a tithing opportunity to get by. Now, notice what Jesus said. You you guys are spot on with the tithing. You recognize what Malachi said, who said uh, when people don't tithe, they actually rob God. He said, you get all that. You understand that. But you do that to the neglect of the weightier matters. So on one hand, you can go, I'm glad tithing is not one of the weightier matters. That's like the lower level. What are the weightier matters? And he said, where you are given to justice. And kindness and faithfulness. So, friends, it's kind of like this. What he was saying to the Pharisees is, you guys are awesome. You tithe. But that's kind of kindergarten. In the, in the following of God, the living out the righteous life, tithing is like kindergarten. Pursuing justice, righteousness, faithfulness, kindness. Those are, you know, getting on into high school and college. And you go, yeah, I, I never liked that tithing one very much. I think I'll just go on to the weightier matters. Well, the rest of what Jesus had to say about these things are, if you're not faithful with the lesser things, you will not be faithful with the greater things, the weightier things. Notice what else he said about the Pharisees. He goes, in John 5, 39, you guys are... Incredibly intense about the scriptures. You search the scriptures. You think you can find life in the scriptures. And he went on to say, now my problem with you about that is you miss me. You look in the scriptures and you don't find me. You don't see how God has been leading up to me through all of scripture. So that's a problem. But to your credit, you get it. That the scriptures are infallible, that the scriptures are authoritative, that the scriptures are God breathed and inspired, that the scriptures are, are to be obeyed and to be a guide and a lamp unto your feet. And then he said about the Pharisees, and when it comes to prayer, man, you guys pray long, you pray loud, you pray often. When you pray, everybody knows you pray, and there's the problem with your prayer. You do it more for people to notice you than you do it to really communicate with God. But you pray. So here's the point, friends. Even the Pharisees who skewed stuff were affirmed in the practices that they sought to carry out about righteousness with regard to sharing faith and evangelism. Tithing and generosity, not robbing God. 
intensely studying the scriptures and praying. But the point at which they missed it, that we dare not miss it, is that it was all external. It was all driven, uh, the, word, the Bible uses this word, by the flesh. That is to say, by self. Uh, I want to be righteous, and so I will do these things to be righteous. And it was all external. And Jesus said, that's a real problem. Because the only way you're going to have the righteousness we're talking about is if I impute it to you, and it's internal. It's already in you, and it's working its way out of you. That's the only way it happens. And therefore, Jesus had these very, very harsh things to say to the most righteous people of the day. You're hypocrites. You're sons of hell. You're blind guides. You're wicked. You're snakes. You're blind fools. Now, I don't, I don't know what your little picture of Jesus is, but if you've adopted the common American cultural picture of Jesus who walks around in a little white robe and you know, just pets lambs and, and uh, woos children and he's just this nicest, never offend you kind of guy, you need to look at the Bible. He's a straight shooter. He will tell you like it is. And he stood and he looked in the face of the most righteous guys in the day. And he said, you're hypocrites. It's all external. There's nothing internal to it. You're blind guides. You're leading people to hell. You're like a bunch of snakes. Couldn't be any more politically incorrect. Well, let's just all get along. No. This is off the mark, and you need to know you're off the mark. Now, what are we supposed to do with these little reflections? Because the point is what? What does God want? Righteousness. What's righteousness look like? It looks like a right standing before God and a right living as you're carrying on with life. What are we supposed to learn and take away from what we just saw with these Pharisees? Well, the first is this. Put zero trust in your own goodness. How much is zero? Nada. Zip. Nothing. You understand I'm not making a case for being bad. I'm just saying you can't put your trust in your own goodness. We already heard a couple of stories this morning about learning to trust God. And it's way beyond your own actions. It's based in his character. Isaiah 64 verse 6 tells us, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. So the best that you and I can manufacture at attempts of being good, God goes, oh, that is nasty, and throws it away. The difference is if there is an internal righteousness that is producing good deeds and good acts. So, if you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, then are you seeking first God's kingdom, God's righteousness? 
This is for you to ask and answer in your heart. The Holy Spirit in this very moment is doing a work of illumination for you to help you answer that question. Is he first? Are you building your life around him? And all that he's about. Are you bearing fruits of righteousness? From what he's putting in you, there's something that's coming out that's a whole lot like Jesus. Are you so sure about the lack of worth of your own goodness that you're putting no confidence in that? I'm not going to score points. I'm not going to make you know brownie points with God. I'm not going to earn His favor. There's just no worth and value in and of itself of my personal good deeds. And does all that bring you to a point of awe? Who is this God? In all of His glory, in all of His holiness and all of his transcendence who is this god that would care about you or me who would love who would sacrifice for us who would disclose himself to unworthy recipients who is this god how magnanimous How remarkable. How unlike any other person being anywhere, anytime. Does it bring you to a point of awe? So let me ask you for a commitment to him. Out of this conversation today... As God is stirring you, will you, as a part of your regular practice, your lifestyle, confess sin? Confess it to God. Confess it to trusted others. This is the only way that we are able to continue the flow of his righteousness in us and out of us. Once we stop confessing sin, acknowledging sin, dealing with sin, it's like a dam in our heart that backs up everything that God would want to keep pouring into us. Will you confess sins and will you consecrate self? Which simply means I set my life apart to him. My life is not my own. My life does not belong to my spouse or my family or anybody else. They get a lot of use of it, but my life belongs to Jesus. And will you commit To him single-mindedly. That's one of the ways you know his righteousness is at work in you. Is that you're not double-minded. Oh, I, I really want God, but I also want... No. True righteousness at work in your heart makes you single-minded. Now, what about my family? When you are single-minded about God, he loves your family more than you do. He's going to be at work in you in ways that benefit your family. Well, what about my job? They demand all this crazy... I know. 
He cares about your job more than you do because he's placed you there as his ambassador and agent for missional purposes. Earning a living is just a secondary thing. He cares about that. So he will be at work with you in ways that matter in your workplace. But it's first and foremost committing to him, his ways, his purposes, and allowing him to consider all these other things. Now, we're just about to receive the Lord's Supper. Before we do, let's finalize whatever you need to square up in your heart. I would encourage you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment of prayer because I want to pray for you. And you'll want to pray with me for yourself. Let's just have a moment of silence first. God, anything you want to say in my heart about the state of my life, I'm listening. Now, Father, because you're good and because you're holy, you've just been kind enough in these moments to put your finger on some aspect of our lives, a character defect, some point of sin that is habitual to us, that we hold on to and that we love. You've put your finger on destructive thinking deceptions that we've held as truth. And so, Father, we confess this. We, by your power, consecrate ourselves to you, put ourselves back in your hand. You're the potter, we're the clay. And we commit to be single-minded about you. In Jesus' name, amen.